Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, Quality Education, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about improving our current education systems for the radically changing 21st century global society. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today, I'm speaking with Bud Hall. He's at the University of Victoria in Canada at the Center for Global Studies and a UNESCO co-chair in community-based research and social responsibility in higher education. And I'm speaking with Dr. Rajesh Tandon, a UNESCO co-chair and founder and president of Participatory Research in Asia, a global research and training center based in New Delhi, India. Their book is Socially Responsible Higher Education International Perspectives on Knowledge Democracy. Thank you to you both for coming here today. Thank you very much for inviting us. We're delighted to be um, able to uh, interact or at least to share some of the uh, the viewpoints and the findings from our book with uh, listeners in the in the Britain Brill's uh, Humanities series. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, you begin by looking at social responsibility as a tension in higher education in three Latin American countries, Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay. How have each of those countries enabled social inclusion in higher education, and what are the results so far? Um, the, the history in Latin America when they, when they think about the concept of social responsibility, the, the kind of institutional response in Latin America goes back uh, almost 30 years to, uh, to an early declaration uh, in, uh, that was promulgated uh, in uh, Montevideo in Uruguay uh, around the concept of university extension. And University extension, uh, the, 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 the structures of university extension were agreed upon by the public uh, universities in Latin America all those many years ago. And they were put into place for a number of reasons, some of which were to provide uh, learning opportunities for professionals, you know, prof- continuing professional education. Some was... Uh, you know, lifelong learning so people at different ages could uh, acquire uh, higher education. But a lot of it was in order to meet, uh, to to increase social inclusion, to try to find ways so that higher education could be made available, you know, to low-income uh, people, people who are living in the you know, in the the uh, the, the favelas and the the barrios of the of the big cities in those countries. The, the country that probably has moved the furthest um, in this direction is Argentina. Uh, Argentina, all of the universities, public and private, um, have, have very strong what they call service learning uh, programs, whereby uh, students, nearly all of the students, are provided with opportunities for engagement in community uh, kind of social change or community uh, development uh, projects, um, and the, you know, over the years they they have a uh, they have a, a very strong kind of civil society organization which supports that, and in general they have been leaders 
in Latin America. Uruguay has also uh, followed suit um, and, you know, kind of a middle road. And so you will find in the Uruguayan universities, you'll find strong extension departments, um, a, a lot of community outreach activities and a lot of service learning. Brazil, although uh, inspired by the, you know, the great um, Brazilian educational philosopher, Paulo Freire, um, has had uh, ups and downs. During the early years of the Lula presidency, their extension units were really fantastic, uh, you know, and built, going, doing lots of things. But more recent years, with a change in government, uh, the, the, the very idea of social inclusion is suspect and uh, a much, much narrower concept. So uh, these, you know, the universities um, in uh, Latin America are influenced a lot in what they can do by the particular uh, political regime which is in power. And I'm also curious, you talk about this inherent economic inequality in those countries and that that contributes to that tension there. Um, but one could argue you're seeing greater economic inequality in places like the United States as well. So I'm just wondering how that plays out. Is that tension unique to these Latin American countries? No, not at all. In fact, you might even argue that the gap uh, between the, the rich and the poor is larger in the wealthier countries. Um, you know, Latin America, although there's there are extremes of you know, accumulation of wealth in, in Latin America, but nowhere near the, the, the degree of accumulation in, in some of the wealthier countries, the UK or the United States, or even to some degree, Canada. Uh, and the, the, you know, the, the growth over the last uh, 30 or 40 years in a place like the US, <clears throat> um, where, um, you know, where the, the graduation rate, if, if you are uh, black in the United States, the graduation rate uh, for se in secondary schools would be, uh, you know, in the realm of 30 or 40 percent. And, uh, you know, so you can imagine how many, you know, what percentage of that age group is going on to university. And so there there are the same, um, you know, concern with inclusion is, is very much, uh, uh, you know, is something that's being, uh, you know, is, is being thought about in some places, in some universities, uh, you know, are doing quite a lot. Um, but I probably we would argue that that uh, this kind of that among the various, uh, you know, kind of uh, tensions in the world, the you know, the, the gaps between the rich and the poor in 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 the rich countries and between rich and poor countries is uh, uh, is, is is exacerbated sometimes by by higher education and sometimes higher education is finding a way to help to bridge those gaps. And so on that point of inclusion, uh, are there examples of inclusion from other regions? Yes, uh, we have in our book several case studies which illustrate how inclusion is being promoted in other countries and regions. Let me give you the example of uh, Qatar. Uh, the university there five years ago decided to change the language of instruction into Arabic. They were earlier teaching in English. And uh, other than engineering, all disciplines and degree programs shifted to Arabic 
And the reason they changed was because they were realizing that semi-urban populations, predominantly uh, using Arabic language in high school, were not able to participate in post-secondary education. And already they are showing very positive impact in registration, enrollment, in the completion of degrees, and in fact, a, a better, uh, better response from the industry uh, uh, as they join uh, their first jobs. Uh, another example is from Kazakhstan, where the instruction in uh, local Kazakh language has improved enrollment and uh, opened up post-secondary education possibilities for young people, which was earlier not available. So language of instruction is not just language. It is also concepts, uh, contextual meanings of concepts. All these get elaborated and improve inclusion. We have to remember that for first generation higher education students, whose parents uh, did not go to college or university, uh, you know, getting adjusted to such institutional spaces for learning requires an ecosystem approach. And affirmative action alone is not enough, though it helps. So you can have reservations, as is being done in India, for indigenous people and scheduled caste communities. But they come into the system and if they face uh, language difficulties, then it begins to make learning more difficult. So these examples uh, suggest that there are multiple routes and pathways to inclusion, and one of which is to support students, and another is to look at the curriculum and pedagogy, because community-engaged learning motivates students, and if that happens, in a language that they are familiar with, that is used in everyday life, that certainly keeps them engaged in learning while they are studying in higher education institutions. That's an interesting point you make too about language and concepts, because there are some concepts that cannot be translated into another language. I know from speaking a little bit of French that there are some words and phrases like laïcité, for example, that illustrate something not only about the French language, but also about its history and their way of thinking. So I think that's a very interesting point about changing the language and changing the way of thinking. Yeah, because you see, uh, only three or European languages which have dominated uh, higher education system, English, French, and Spanish, um, even in uh, many countries of Latin America, several sections of the population don't speak either of those. They don't speak Spanish as their mother tongue. Uh, they have different ways of expressing themselves in everyday life. And if you're... Uh, higher education does not prepare you to work in everyday life, then, then you, it promotes migration, it shifts people away from their context, and all highly skilled human capital formation does not serve the society where they get educated. 
So it's important to, to keep this in mind as we are discovering in our book. So kind of on that point of talking about non-Western views in education, you pose this question, why are our rankings so white, which I think is just fascinating. Can you dig into what's behind the metrics that are used for university rankings and why they skew toward Western institutions? Yeah, let me let me tackle that one. There are three chapters in the book which uh, talk about, you know, that raise the question, the one which you, uh, uh, you know, uh, just mentioned which provocatively uh, raises the question about the, the rankings are so white. And there's two other chapters that look at metrics uh, fr- from uh, a number of the perspective of a number of countries. So what what you have with the the major uh, the major ranking uh, systems, the Times Higher Education, uh, Shanghai, and a couple of others, they're quite similar in terms of what do they count. So what do you get uh, what do you get points for? Well, you get points for uh, the number of Nobel Prize winners that you have uh, in your university. Uh, what else do you get points for? You get points for publishing uh, in uh, what they call A-list uh, journals that publish in English and which publish or which are published in European countries, in England or in Europe or in in uh, in North America. What else do you? What else do they count? They count uh, research funding. So uh, you have national research councils which support academic research in all of the major European countries, but in, uh, with the exception of South Africa, there's not a single uh, a country in, in, in Africa that has uh, you know, research funding for their scholars. The a- African scholars are dependent on partnerships with, uh, with the North. And, um, and lastly, they, um, the domination of the English language. Um, if you come from a country where, you know, where you're a, you know, a native English speaker, you know, it's a, a lot easier to master, uh, you know, kind of academic discourse than if you're, uh, you know, coming, you know, if you're coming from a, a country where you're probably speaking one tongue at home, uh, you know, another language, uh, you know, nationally, and then you have to come into the international arena with English, you know, as a third uh, choice. And so, you know, competing with, uh, you know, with Oxford trained or MIT or Stanford or, you know, those those kinds of universities, it's very difficult. So you, when you wrap it all up, what you end up with, if you look at any of these ranking lists, you'll find, you know, uh, the, basically Europe, uh, England's got, got a few, um, uh, the you know, United States, uh, Asia is beginning to have a few, particularly China, um, but but it's, it's uh, out of the top 500, Probably uh, you know three hundred and fifty are uh, are coming from countries that are that are predominantly white um, and predominantly I would say there's a preponderance of male scholarships uh, uh, represented in there as well. So I'm curious. In recent years, have you seen any kind of break in that? Any institutions that uh, have come forth from you know say 
India or China or or kind of a non-Western area, or given the fact that the basis for this and the gold standard is essentially English um, or or American, whatever you would like to qualify it as, are we just kind of on this inexorable march toward Western dominance in higher ed? Well, no, I think I think it's gonna it's gonna collapse. Pandemic has done a great job. The primary reason these rankings work is to for student recruitment, international student recruitment, and pandemic disrupted that heavily. So, what do parents look for when they are looking to send their kids in another country, paying a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars? for their undergrad education. They look for these rankings. Now they can't send anybody and nobody's going to give 200,000 for online education, even if it is Harvard. So already this is being disrupted. There are examples in the book in a chapter where in Francophone Africa, they have started creating a network of publishing uh, instruments in local language which is a combination of French, but also with local dialects and flavors. And uh, similar trends are beginning to emerge. Um, and I think we will find very soon that uh, this shift will begin to happen. The, the problem lies not so much within the country as it lies in those who are internationally advising countries on higher education structures and on systems. So. What is not being measured is what is your contribution in the locality where you are based to climate change and achievement of SDGs. And I can assure you, Harvard will fail just as Oxford will fail. There is more homelessness in and around Harvard campus than anywhere else in the US. So they will fail, but that is not being measured. And that is what is going to be measured in post-pandemic era with climate change and disruption to matrix mania. But was there something you also wanted to add on that point? No, I was I was saying that the changes when you see, uh, for example, a Chinese university moving up the the, the rankings change chain. Or uh, you know a university in another uh, in a majority world country, uh, what they've been successful in is uh, is they've been successful in imitating um, you know in uh, the you know kind of the performance in Western universities. That means, for example, let me give you an example from Malaysia. The Ministry of Higher Education in Malaysia has told its scholars that they are that as a priority they should publish in English language international journals. Uh, why should they do that? Because Malaysia would like to see their universities, you know, ranked higher in the global ranking game. But what that, what that does is it undercuts uh, a whole, um, you know, a whole, a large number of, of uh, you know, uh, Bahasa Malay, um, uh, Malaysian language journals, which have been producing, you know, terrific stuff, 
you know, for years in philosophy and history and science and so forth, uh, you know, in their own national language. But if the best among them, uh, you know, are drawn away or shoved away or or or, or encouraged to 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 publish uh, only in in uh, you know British journals or American journals or you know uh, you know Dutch journals that publish in English, you can see it's going to weaken. It's going to weaken the the uh, you know the 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 um, you know kind of the scientific. Uh, you know, language capacity of the national language. And uh, so, um, you know, you almost, your heart almost, you know, drops when you see, you know, a university in, in a majority world country that, uh, that that lives in another language rising up the food chain. That means that they are, as Rajesh said, they are increasingly um, out of touch, not only with the neighborhood where they're located, but with the, the polity you know of the of the country where they where they exist. And Dr. Tandon, I just wanted to note that that is a very interesting point you made about how the pandemic has shifted things in higher ed. I mean, we've seen it disrupt so many different areas, uh, and I think it'll be interesting to see how it could move the needle on this as well. Uh, I want to talk about radicalization of students, which uh, is, of course, sometimes a, a touchy topic. Uh, when it comes to preventing the radicalization of students, how do universities ensure that they're not targeting specific ethnic, religious, and cultural groups in the process? Well, let me, let me tell you what happened to me when I went to university. I went from a reasonably very local high school with my mother tongue Hindi to a nationally important Indian Institute of Technology for study of engineering with professors drawn from America and UK and other countries. I suddenly met kids from all over the country many of whom did not know my mother tongue. But in those days, we were debating politics. We were debating student union movement, trade union movement. We used to have on-campus discussions like power flows from the barrel of the gun. So in a way, campuses provide a space for critical reflection, open thinking, freedom of expression, and debate. And this has been so on university campuses around the world. The problem is not about radicalization per se. The problem is where that radicalization tends to target an ethnic or religious community, as you mentioned. That kind of approach on campuses is triggered not by students, is triggered by the larger political system, which tends to feed into this kind of ethnocentric critical conversation. Little do these people realize that way before universities came into being in Europe, the most progressive higher education institutions existed in the Islamic world between the ninth and the 13th century, 
and even before they existed in Indian Peninsula between 3rd BC to 11th AD. So those campuses were also radicalizing because they exposed you to different ideas, different people, different worldviews, different cultures. But they were shared and discussed and debated in a spirit of cohabitation, respect for diversity, and listening to plural voices, never prejudicing, targeting, or creating stigmas on different others. So what we are witnessing in small pockets of higher education is not unique to the campus. It is a response to the larger political ecosystem which feeds, including media these days. So I think uh, university campuses uh, do create opportunities for learning beyond your own immediate experience. And that is the best way you can learn face-to-face, -face, not online. So to your earlier point then about how the pandemic has disrupted things, um, you know, of course, so much of university learning has moved online. Do you feel that that will uh, actually hurt uh, that traditional sense of uh, debate that's supposed to happen on a physical campus? Do you feel that students might become more radicalized if they are learning mostly online and, and they're remote? Well, if you only live in digital world, you're bound to get disconnected from the real world. And it is important, therefore, that we create hybrid models of learning. I don't think online learning forever is sustainable, is feasible, and is worth it. So this may be a short-term problem. University campuses can return to opportunities for that kind of an interaction. And without that interaction, you might as well uh, stay inside a computer as opposed to in a society. Dr. Rajesh Tandon and Bud Hall, they are the editors of Socially Responsible Higher Education International Perspectives on Knowledge Democracy. Thank you again to you both. Thank you very much, Lee. Thank you. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.